Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Carol. Well, good morning. As uh, we were praying for Pastor Sumbud, I was, well, and also what Angel said about the, uh, the longer you grow in Christ, the more the less you point your finger at him and the more you appreciate his goodness and grace to you. I was thinking with Pastor Sumboot uh, of just the beauty of long-term relationships and how there's a lot of just sticking to things in the midst of that. But boy, the benefits, I just don't think there's a substitute for the benefits that come with just long-term being faithful and not just jetting when things get tough, and that 22 years ago, we began a relationship with Pastor Sumboot in 1994 in a little hotel room as we were praying for who we should partner with in Indonesia, and uh, he and Marmi were, she was pregnant, and uh, we just sensed that this was where God wanted us to partner, and uh, began pastoring a church there in Bali, and uh, that absolutely imploded. And the next team we took over, there was <laughs> accusations at a public service of stealing money and all kinds of bizarre things went on. Thankfully, the team couldn't understand Indonesia, so they didn't even know what was going on. But Kevin was sitting next to me as, as the church leaders had set up this ambush of Sumbut. And uh, being the gracious, humble man that he is, uh, he didn't allow that to embitter him at all. And, and now he uh, has served as the church leader for all of the Baptist churches in Indonesia. He started one seminary. He's turned the major seminary. He's helped them turn a corner back into some great faithfulness. And he's an international speaker on what God does. In fact, that's why he's in America. He was in a conference in Wisconsin and Chicago by one of the largest missions churches in America, and he had come over to speak, and uh, thankfully we're friends, so he said, while I'm in America, I want to make sure I see you guys. He's actually preaching in Tucson this morning because Arnie Humble has more weight than I do, <laughs> as he should. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, it's going to be good to pick him up at the airport tonight. And if you'd like to come and hear some of what God's doing in his life, uh, you're welcome over at our house on Tuesday night, and we'll just get an update on what's going on in his life. So anyway, and, and that's very much what Paul is writing to the Philippians about as we pick up this morning in Philippians 4. Just how do you respond day in and day out in the uncertainties of life? When you hit great highs, what do you do? When you hit great lows, when things get phenomenally confusing or when the light bulb finally goes on, how do you respond? And here, uh, Paul is just, uh, by the power of the Spirit to this local church in Philippi, he's just causing uh, Christian rubber to meet the road. He's causing what we believe to be lived out in daily everyday life in ordinary people that have experienced the miraculous, redemptive, saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And, uh, and so, uh, as I've said for a couple weeks here, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul really expresses the way that God transforms a person when they become a follower of Jesus. You remember Paul, we're introduced to him at the martyrdom of Stephen as he's in charge of that party that puts Stephen, one of the first deacons, to death. And uh, he's known as ravaging the church, putting people in prison and breaking up families and doing all kinds of stuff. And God, by his just choice, stops him on the road one day and makes him a follower of his and uh, turns him into one who begins to take the gospel. And here some years later, in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers to these believers as beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. I mean, that's the transforming work that God does where he takes your heart and he pulls it away from the things of this world. He pulls it away from the prestige. He pulls it away from comfort. He pulls it away from all the temporal things of this world, and he changes it so that you value people, and especially you value believers who you see as brothers and sisters in Christ, who you see as the beloved uh, where your heart is invested, uh, and that you love to spend time with them. You're better off because you do, and hopefully they're better off because you do as well. And, and, and the whole point of joy in this life and the whole crown of this life is, is the way you've been able to be a part in other people's spiritual well-being and the way they're a part in your own spiritual well-being. That's the transformative work that God does in a believer's heart and life. And it's just a crazy thing, isn't it? It's just a crazy thing. Now, some of you who have grown up in a Christian home and you're, and you're maybe in middle school or something now or that's your heritage, you may not appreciate it maybe as much as some of us who could care less for a while. But nonetheless, it's a transforming work and it needs to keep growing. It needs to keep blossoming. Uh, even as Angel said, you know, you just keep falling in love with the Lord more every day. You keep falling in love with God's people. You keep falling in love with people who need Christ more and more every day. And there's this little statement in verse 1 that is Paul's uh, exhortation to the Philippians. It's an exhortation that comes from the Spirit to us today in how does that happen and how do you keep growing in that? And it is this phrase, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. You're citizens of heaven and keep standing firm in the Lord. And then in these next verses, down through verse 9, he describes how you stand firm in the Lord. In case there was any doubt, he tells us. And he helps get on a corrective path with two ladies that are in the church. But then he goes on into the next verses in chapter, in verses 4 down, and he says, here's how you stand firm in the Lord. You are rejoicing always in the Lord. God is always up to something. And in the Lord, you can always be rejoicing. Do you believe that? It's true. And he says, how else do you stand in the Lord? You let your gentle spirit be known to other people. Remember we said the word actually means you're sacrificing uh, spirit. You're serving spirit towards other people, uh, which when people observe it, they, they call it a gentleness. 
uh, and that takes us right back to Philippians 2. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, as we celebrate at the Lord's Supper this morning, made himself a servant and, and was humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so, how do you stand firm in the Lord? You walk around saying, how can I serve other people? Thirdly, you have hearts and minds that are at peace in Christ Jesus. Now, we dealt with the first two last week. We were partway through this one. Hearts and minds at peace in Christ Jesus. Two aspects to that that he tells us. One way you do that is by prayer with thanksgiving. The other way is to control what you think about, purposeful thinking. And so we're going to pick up there this morning, and then we're going to go on down to the last verse and where he says, just practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So with that in mind, let me just read the verses. Uh, I want you to stand with me, please, if you will, in beginning of verse 4. And uh, these come to us as commands that the Spirit of God gives us the ability to live out. Beginning of verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you so, for so clearly speaking to us in this, your word. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all that you have done so that we can have this as a growing experience in our lives. And thank you, Spirit of God, that you do this holy work. You help us to be those who rejoice always. You help us to be those who walk around and around people, and, you, and we're just thinking, how can we serve you? You help us to have hearts and minds that are at peace, and you help us just keep practicing these things. And Lord, we need a further holy work from you this morning that the truths that you speak of here would become a growing experience in each of our hearts and lives. So we trust you for that because that's your specialty, and it's what you love to do. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And so when we look at what God is going to do and the way that he describes this, I, there's a quote, and I put it in your bulletin there, that I think is helpful uh, and says it way better than I could possibly say it. It says, the church was to make these matters its collective goal, and God would rule in them. Individual Christians were to also conduct their lives in this way. This speaks to the need of rearranging life and thought 
through discipline so that the God of peace can freely work. Now, one of the things I'm I'm growingly mindful of is when we read the Bible, we read it from a very Western American mindset, and we read it very individualistically. And that's not the way it was written, nor is that the way the people thought who would have received this. First of all, many of you are from other cultures, and you would understand that when a letter like this was written, it was written to a body and group of people and was to be lived out in community. And that's what this particular person emphasizes. The church was to make these matters its collective goal. The church was to always be rejoicing. The church was to be able, looking for ways to serve. The church was to be the place where our hearts and minds are always at peace. The church is to be the place to practice these things. Now, obviously, the church is made up of individuals, and so individual Christians were to also conduct their lives in this week way. This speaks to the need of, and this is the hard part, those, that next word, isn't it? Rearranging life. I have recognized that all of life is simply keeping rearranging. I mean, you read God's Word, and it always calls you to some rearrangement, does it not? The first time that I'm going to experience not having to rearrange my life is when I see Jesus face to face in heaven. There's just this constant rearranging of life and thought through, here's another one of those nasty words, discipline, so that the God of peace can freely work. Now, don't read that and say, well, i got to get these things straight so God can show His favor to me. That's not what it's saying, and that's not the gospel. What it's saying is we prevent God from freely working by not rejoicing all the time, by grumbling and complaining and pointing our fingers at Him. It's not that he's angry, so he moves away. No, we have limited his ability to work when we don't rejoice always. When we get selfish in our relationships with other people, that's not the character and nature of God, and so it prevents him from freely working. When we are worried about things, or when we're thinking about things that are not excellent and of good repute and all of those qualities, it prevents God from working as freely as He wants to work. And so He says, man, the God of peace wants to do a work. And so He gives us these commands so that we might live, if you will, in the bounty of the relationship that we have with Him. And so last week we stopped at hearts and minds at peace in Christ Jesus, and specifically in verses 6 and 7 there. So let me just pick up there this morning, and let's kind of back into this by looking at the promise in verse 7, first of all. The promise is that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll notice the phrase, the peace of God. And it may be helpful to contrast the peace of God with the peace with God, because it's a very important distinction that is necessary here. The Bible tells us that all of us come into a relation, come into this world, and we are in a position of hostility towards God. And in fact, in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through what? Through our good works? Through our church membership? Through doing good to other people? Through baptism? Through the Lord's Supper? Just say, no, 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 no. Through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you just look over to the first chapter of Colossians there, which if you're using a paper Bible, is probably on the next page, you'll look at verse 19 and it'll say, chapter 119, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, to dwell in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And then it goes on to talk about how we were formerly alienated and our deeds were hostile. And what took place on the cross when Jesus was crucified was He took upon Himself the only innocent person, the guilt of all of us who would believe in Him. And the Father poured out His wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ, a wrath that you and I deserve as sinners, and He paid for it in full, and He could say, it is finished. The debt is paid in full, and that means that there is nothing standing between us and the Father now, because the Christ has taken that out of, out of the way through the cross. Therefore, we have peace with God, peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those who, and by the way, that's what the Lord's Supper is a reminder of, right? On the night he was betrayed, we read in 1 Corinthians 11, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup in like manner after supper. And he says, this cup is the new covenant, which is in my blood. As often as you drink this, drink it in remembrance of me. That's a reminder of why and how we have peace with God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ giving his body and shedding his blood to pay for our sins so that he gives us, he takes away our sins and he gives to us his righteousness. Now the reality is for every person who has peace with God, they can live in the peace of God. Everybody who has peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ is then called to live in the peace of God. Now, what does it mean, the peace of God? Well, of means it belongs to God, right? This is something that is God's possession. So what is the peace of God? Well, to understand the peace of God, it may be helpful to remind ourselves of some of the qualities of God or some of the attributes of God. For example, God knows everything. He is omniscient. What are some other qualities or attributes of God? Just name out a few of them. Okay, He is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. What else? Okay, He's patient. I heard patient. He never flies off and has to go back and say, I blew that. What else? He's all-knowing. He knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Nothing's going to surprise him. Nothing's going to catch him off guard. He's not ever going to say, ooh, I missed that. Okay, there's a lot of qualities about God. Now, because of those qualities, 
That means he lives in a state of perpetual peace, right? Because if you know everything, you're present every place, you're all powerful, you're all wise, all of those things, is anything going to ever catch you off guard? Is anything ever going to worry you? You ever going to sweat anything? No. That's the peace of God because of who He is. And because we are citizens of His, because we are children of His, and because we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that kind of peace is ours. If we'll live in it, it's ours. Because we have a Father who knows everything. We have a Father who is present every place. We have a Father who's all wise. All of those things, right? And, and He wants us to live in that peace, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. We are His. And so the promise here is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. You know what that means? It means I can't explain it to you. That's exactly what that means. I'd be an idiot to try to say, well, that's what that means. How do I know what it means to know everything, have all power, be all wise, and and to live in that place? How would I know what that's like? I, I don't have any of those things. But that's the peace that God wants us to live in, and it will guard your hearts. It will be a sentry. Remember the Philippians lived with Roman soldiers every place. Many of them have served in the Roman army. They knew what it was for a Roman guard to guard something. And if anything got through, they paid for it with the penalty of death. And and it says the peace of God God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so there is this peace that God gives, and that's the promise. So how? How do we experience that? I think we'd all say, I want that, right? Wouldn't we all say, I want that? I mean, how do we experience that? Verse 6, be anxious for nothing. That's a command. Uh, Maybe even better translated, stop worrying about anything. He knows we worry. Stop worrying about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so here's what we said last week. Prayer, supplication, request, or be made known to God. Make them known to God. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He, he, he is everything. Make them known to God. Now, it's not like we're informing Him of something. God, did you notice? <laughs> or you may not know how hard this is. This is not an issue of informing him. This is an issue of casting our cares upon him. This is a case of transferring the responsibility over to God for the things in our lives, for everything, it literally says. Now, we said the word anxiety or anxious or worry there is actually the word concern. And and you might remember last week that that we're called to have a rightful concern for people. 
and situations, but people. And, and what happens is, is that because we're sinful people, we err on, on either side of this thing. We either err on the side of not caring like we should care, maybe because we don't want our hearts to get tugged around, maybe because they've been tugged around so much we've become numb to it, maybe because we can't sleep at night because of worry, so we go all the way over here and, and says, I'm not going to think about this, I'm not going to be concerned about that. That's just irresponsibility. There is the standing in the Lord, but on the other side is to have a worry or a concern on steroids or a worry where you assume responsibility for things that are not ours to be worried or concerned about. We've assumed some responsibility or something that we should never have assumed. And so we're called to stand in the Lord. And, and that's the place that He wants us to be. That's where the peace of God is. Now, how do we make our prayers, supplications, requests be made known to God while we recognize, God, you are God and I am not? How by our prayers and supplications and making our requests known to God, how do we recognize that all of who God is is turned towards us for our benefit? How do we recognize that God will use His omniscience for my good? How do we recognize that God will use His omnipotence for my benefit? How do we recognize that God will use His omnipresence for my sake? How do we recognize that His wisdom is going to be played out in my life and my heart? How do we do that? With thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the way that we, in a very practical way, recognize who God is in these particular circumstances and situations. We do not have to beg God to notice what's going on. He knows everything. We don't have to beg God to be present with our child when they go someplace. He's all present. We don't have to beg God to use His power. He will use His power. It's so clearly demonstrated in what He did for us in Christ. If He's freely given us that, won't He freely give us all things? To which the answer is what? Yes. Thanksgiving is a key, key part of this whole deal because it changes us from begging God for things. It changes our hearts from, oh God, I hope you're for me. Oh God, I hope you'll help me. Oh God, I hope you'll give me power to recognize and being thankful that God has already made it clear He will and He has and He does. And so this was a little definition I came up with. Thanksgiving is an act whereby we believe that God's heart is turned towards us in Christ, and He will only, always do what is best for us according to His eternal perspective. Let's look at how Jesus put this. Go over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Let's jump into verse 25. Jesus speaking to the bunch of people who had gathered around him on the mountain there. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, 
do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the non-followers of God, eagerly seek all these things, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, the key to this thing is is just answering the questions that Jesus Jesus asked. And so go back to verse 25. Is not life more than food and body, more than clothing? What's the answer to that? Yes. If it is more than that, what is it? Well, go over to verse 33. It's all about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That is what it's about. In our own lives and in the lives of other people, that is what it is about. Take a look at the birds. Camilla drew a picture one time of some birds sitting on a telephone wire, and they were having this conversation They went something like this. I don't know why these human beings rush around like this. They must not have a heavenly father like we do that takes care of us. Now, every time I see those pigeons and stuff on the light post of the intersections, I think, man. And what's the point? If God takes care of them, are you not much more valuable than they? And what's the answer? Yes. Did did Christ die for the birds? No. He died for us. We are so much more valuable. Verse 27, can any one of us add a single hour to our life? What's the answer? Can any one of us add a single hour to a best friend's life or a child's life? Yes or no? No. So do not worry, verse 31, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? That's the way people who do not have a Father in heaven think and live. Now, you might say, well, then just don't even care about clothing. Don't even care about what you eat. Don't even care about protecting and caring for your own life and the lives of others. No, if you are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, you'll be faithful to dress in a way that fits his kingdom and his righteousness. You'll faithful, be faithful to eat in a way that fits his kingdom and his righteousness. And you'll be faithful to care for the own well-being of your life and your children's life and your friend's life 
in a way that fits the kingdom and His righteousness, right? But you'll stand in Jesus. You won't move over here and end up worrying about it. And you won't move over here and say it doesn't matter. And so that's exactly what the Lord Jesus says. I came across this quote this week uh, from, whoops, patience isn't my strength when I'm up here. Um, And so William Barclay, it's, it's in a little bit of old English, but listen to this. He says, when we pray, we must always remember three things. We must remember the love of God, which ever desires only what is best for us. We must remember the wisdom of God, which alone knows what is best for us. We must remember the power of God, which alone can bring to pass that which is best for us. He who prays with a perfect trust in the love, wisdom, and power of God will find God's peace. And that's exactly the role of thanksgiving that Paul tells him. You do not need to pray for God's love. You have it. Thank Him for it. You do not need to pray for God's power. Thank Him for it and live in it. Now, I know there can be some, uh, this can get a little tricky, and I don't want to be critical of the way that we pray, because we are told to ask for wisdom. We are told to ask for power. But it's not a begging asking. It's the asking of a child knowing that their father will give it liberally. And say, Father, would you give me wisdom in this? I know you will. I'm just asking so my heart will be receptive to it. God, I know the power that raised Christ from the dead is towards me. And I know that I don't have to beg you for power. I don't even have to wonder if the power is there. Lord, I just pray this to remind me to walk in your power and not my power. Sometimes our praying can increase anxiety. Unless thanksgiving is a huge part of it. And so we have this antidote of including thanksgiving as a part of our prayers. Saturday, we'll have a morning of worship-based prayer. One of the most helpful things with a worship-based prayer for me has moved prayer from just going to get to just worshiping God. And if He chooses to give anything, that's His choice. And it has really been helpful. And so we're going to spend the morning, Saturday morning. We'll gather about 8 o'clock, have a few things to eat. We'll begin praying probably 8.20, 8.30. We'll go through until about 12.30. And, uh, and I just would encourage you to come without any expectations, but just knowing, God, you're worthy. You're worthy. And I've come to worship and adore you. And if you choose to say anything to me as a daughter, or as a son of yours, that'd be fine. But this I know. You are worthy to be worshipped, and I will worship you. One more quote on prayer. Somebody has said, prayer with thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Think about that. Prayer without thanksgiving is a bird without wings. What's the point of wings on a bird? It allows it to take advantage of the physical properties of air so it can fly, right? Guess what thanksgiving does to prayer? It allows us to take advantage of the attributes of God and live in the attributes of God so that we can soar through life without worry. That's what thanksgiving does, and it is a huge, huge deal. 
And so, uh, prayer with thanksgiving is part of the key to having a heart and mind at peace with Christ. Verse 9 goes on, verse 8 goes on, and adds another dynamic to it, and that is while that will help uh, set a guard, we have to control what we're thinking about. We have to have some purposeful thinking. And so finally, and probably be even better, one more thing Paul says, brethren, and it, and it goes through this list, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. And I have just simply put in your bulletin some definitions of those words. I'm not going to go through them this morning. Um, But if you ever wonder, I don't think most of us wonder whether we should be thinking about a certain thing or not. I don't think that's our challenge. But if you are wondering, this list will be helpful. And he understands that it's not a comprehensive list. So then he sums it up by saying, if there's any excellence, if there's any excellence, in other words, not just good, but is it the excellent thing? Is it the best use of your brain right now? The word excellence is, was used of the right tool for the job. The, the word excellence was used of the best use of a field for a crop. So the question is, is, is the use of what is going through my brain the best use of my brain right now? And is it worthy of praise? And here's the command, dwell on these things. And it's a command in the middle tense, which means we control what we think about. We have to exercise upon ourselves what we think about. Now, I do not know of a more difficult battle. I just don't know of a more difficult battle. It'd be a lot easier to go out and go to war on a physical battlefield than to fight the battles that go on in our brain and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But this I know, that God has given us a Father who wants to help us think on these things. This I know, we have a Savior who wants to save us from thinking about the other stuff so that we might think on these things. And we have the person of God and the person of the Spirit living in us who will fully enable us to do this if we choose to do it. And so what we think about is critical. William Hendrickson said, anything at all that is a matter of moral and spiritual excellence so that it is the proper object of praise is the right pasture for the Christian mind to graze in. You might think of Psalm 1, meditating in His Word day and night, so that you might be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in its season. And so, it's the same kind of exhortation here. Here's the reality, and you all know this. The mind will always be dwelling on something, right? What the mind dwells on determines one values, their values, their attitudes, and their actions. Our attitudes come right out of what we're thinking about. Our actions come out of what we're thinking about. This is why Jesus dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount about lust and hate and those kinds of things, and He dealt with it in the minds, in our hearts. 
And this, we also know God the Spirit enables every Christian to dwell on these kinds of things. Let me just say to you, I think that's exactly what Paul does in the first chapter of Philippians here. He's in prison. He could dwell on a lot of things, couldn't he? But what's he dwelling on? Look at how this has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, me being in prison. God has brought a bunch of mean and nasty, feared Roman guards, chained them to me, and they're getting the gospel. And guess what it's done to the church at Rome? It's emboldened them to share the gospel even more. Now, some are sharing the gospel even out of spite, but praise God, they're finally sharing the gospel. I think that's a living example of what Paul's talking about here. Think on those things. What is God up to? What is He up to? What do you see Him doing? Which means it probably flows out of rejoicing and always seeing yourself as a servant. And not worrying, but praying instead. And so, he says, control what we think about. Dwell on these things. Finally, verse 9, he says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. There's the command. Practice these things, and here's the promise, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. And you'll notice a couple... uh, couple words that are linked together there. The things you have learned and received, heard and seen in me. And those word, those word combos are helpful. What's the difference between learning something and receiving something? It's a huge difference. You can learn what this passage says. You can quote it to other people. You could pass a test on it. But to receive it means it becomes a part of your way of living. It means you take it to yourself. And Paul says, I don't want you just to learn this. I don't want you to learn these spiritual truths. He says, learn them, yes, but receive them. Take them as your own. And then he says about his own life, you have heard me say these things, but you have also seen me live them out. You have seen me. What's the word he used? Well, you've seen them in me. In fact, one of their first experiences with the Apostle Paul was seeing these realities lived out. Let me read to you a little bit from Acts 16 when Paul had only been in town a few weeks, maybe a few months. I read from Acts 16 says, it happened that as we were going to a place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. 
But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowds rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, after having received such a command, threw them into the innermost prisons and fastened their feet in the stocks." But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Paul says, you've seen me live this out, rejoicing in the Lord always. You've seen me live this out, my gentle spirit and my self-giving spirit. You've seen me live this out of making my requests known to God with thanksgiving. You've seen me live this out by controlling what I think about and what I sing about. You have seen me live this out. And he says to the Philippians and he says to us today, practice these things. Now, here's the beautiful word about practice. What does that mean? Yeah, we're not going to get this perfect. Just what? Keep practicing. Or let me just put it this way. Practice, 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 practice. In fact, isn't every situation a fresh opportunity to practice? It is. So let me just give you an opportunity to practice it in the situation you're in right now. Would you bow your heads, please? And just uh, let the Spirit uh, cause you to receive these and practice rejoicing, having a gentle spirit towards people, praying with thanksgiving and taking thoughts captive and thinking about situations in ways that are excellent and praiseworthy. Just let me give you an opportunity to practice this in a particular circumstance that you're in. Spirit of God, I love the fact that you're called the Holy Spirit because you do a holy work in us. And God, do a further holy work in each of us so that this becomes not more just of what we speak, but what we do for our own sake, but especially, Lord, for the sake of other people. I'm just reminded even this morning, Lord, of how much your church needs people like Paul who will respond to situations as he did. Men and women who will rejoice always in the Lord. And the tougher the circumstance or the great abundance will cause them to stay gentle towards other people. And man, they'll, they'll have a heart and mind that are at peace with you. And always seeing every situation as a fresh chance to practice standing firm in you, Lord Jesus. 
So thanks be to you. Thank you for a chance to come to the Lord's table now. This vivid reminder through what we smell and what we taste, as well as our thanksgiving, that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can live in the peace of God and in the very ways of Christ. So thank you for a chance to celebrate this and share this as a church family. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.